As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. What's going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Buffalo Beat. My name is Joe Pascalia. Thanks to you all for joining me on this technically a post-game podcast from the Bills and Bears game where in which the Bills won 35 to 13, but a couple days delayed for a couple of reasons. I mean, there was a holiday over the weekend, and of course, the very serious snowstorm and blizzard that rolled through. Uh, it uh, was quite a bit here in Buffalo, and uh, I'm sure a lot of you listening probably had to go through the storm, so I hope you all stayed safe, stayed warm, and all of those good things, because that was a, that was a serious, serious storm that, that uh, went through. So, um, But the Bills did get another victory, their sixth straight win. They defeated the Bears by 22 points, a game that was a little too close for comfort for I think a lot of fans out there throughout the first half. I mean, the Bills did go into halftime losing the game. They were down 10 to 6, and then they woke up in the second half in a lot of different ways. So I wanted to take a different sort of approach to this episode. I, I mentioned it right at the end of last episode just because, you know, we had a couple of days to to breathe and to and to think about what that game was maybe bigger picture stuff. So I wanted to open up the floor and it's the first time we're doing this in really since the summer, I think maybe sometime in training camp, maybe sometime before it, but to open it up to some listener questions, because I'm sure there's a lot of different topics that, that you all want to know about that I think would make for some, some good uh, podcast information. So I uh, went through and, found a a ton of different questions, some ranging from the here and now, uh, some ranging from, you know, where specific players are going and then some bigger picture offseason stuff. So I'm going to do my best to hit as many as I can in between now and, you know, the maybe 45, 50 minutes or so. So we'll uh, we'll get right to it. Um, The first question is, I mean, we'll start with the more intricate Bills, Bears, Thing because you know you, you look at the, the Bears game and you're like okay they beat a team that was three and eleven 
how about the rest of it? Uh, how how about how what they did in that game translates moving forward? So uh, that's where we will start. And we'll, we'll begin with Mike Borg, who asked, is the improvement in the run defense against the Bears a sign of things to come or more a reflection of the opponent? Well, thanks for the question, Mike. And I think more than anything, if you listen to the last episode, maybe... You read my all 22 from the previous game, from the Dolphins game, in which the Dolphins were very good on the ground against the Bills. My biggest takeaway was that it was a lack of execution against the Dolphins and less of a structural problem in what the Bills are trying to do from a run defense perspective. They were doing things they, that uh, they don't normally do or they haven't normally done earlier in the season. That being, you know, their defensive tackles getting uh, moved and, and shifted to the side. And I also think a part of it was the game plan against the Dolphins to try and get to Tua Tungabailoa as quickly as possible to make him a little bit more nervous. And the Dolphins offensive line did a great job of, of using that against the Bills, allowing those defensive tackles to get up the field and then kind of shifting the offensive linemen with it to create this wall for Raheem Mostert or Saivon Ahmed to get up the field. Against the Bears... And there was also a, a tackling issue against the Dolphins, which has been here and there a problem, but not an overwhelming one for a lot of the players on the team. And so that's why when you saw against the Bears, the tackling was better. I thought the play of the defensive tackles up front were better. Certainly they got Jordan Phillips back, but even he was in kind of a muted role. He only played 15 snaps in that game. But Ed Oliver was just dominant throughout the day uh, it really showed up in both run defense and pass rushing Daquan Jones had a much better day than he did and that was part of it like Daquan Jones is their best run defender and he had one of his worst games like it wasn't a horrible game but he had one of his worst games of the season against the Dolphins and so I think getting him up and going and being able to play at a similar level to what he has been throughout the season is is a key for that run defense moving forward but I I just I wasn't ridiculously concerned about the run defense on the whole I think the Dolphins just had a good game plan that executed well against the Bills defensive game plan to get after Tua Tungavailoa and what we ended up seeing was the Dolphins take advantage of it but the Bears not, and like Mike uh, asked in his question, there is a certain amount of the reflection of the opponent with the Bears because they were down both their starting guards and their starting guard wasn't good to begin with. Their starting center is not a good player. And then one of their backup guards had to leave the game early on. So they had a backup of a backup in at guard. Regardless, well, that's, I, I didn't mean to do that, <laughs> but it's funny nonetheless. I think the Bills, from a structural run defense standpoint in, you know, 
maintaining their gaps and getting off blocks and securing tackles, I wouldn't be crazy concerned about that as the rest of the regular season rolls on. I think they have mostly done a really nice job of it. Of it. The Dolphins game, uh, this, this past one that they won, the Jets game and the one they lost, and the Packers game in the second half. Those were the three, I think, worst run defense games that they had all season. But for the most part, they've been really good at it. So, so yeah, I think, I think, Mike, this is something that was a short-term problem. Like, are they going to be perfect? Are they going to be an amazing run defense down the stretch? I'm not saying that, but I just don't think they're just going to, it's going to be a humongous weakness for them as they go, go forward. So, Hopefully that was kind of a, a snapshot into maybe what to expect coming up. I do think that the Bills will have a bit more of a uh, difficulty in limiting the run against the Bengals just because the Bengals are a great team. But all in all, I, I see this run defense as not a major, major concern. I would be more concerned with the secondary than I would the, the run defense. All right, next up kind of goes along with what uh, Mike asked. Lou Bupp asked, it was a great game plan versus the electric Justin Fields. Fields also said the wind was crazy. What did you see was the game plan on defense? I think when we're talking about Justin Fields, where the Bills really excelled, and I wrote about this in my post-game observations over at The Athletic, um, they realized that he was at his best and it's not a tough realization because all you have to do is like go on Twitter and find a random highlight of Justin Fields when he breaks the pocket and gets out to the edge on a scramble drill he can make some incredible stuff happen when the defense is caught and I think there was a big time emphasis from the Bills in maybe not selling out to bring down the quarterback from the edges, but in maintaining like this protective bubble around around the pocket to where Fields couldn't escape as quickly as he wanted to or else he would have to back up and then run around. And then by that point, some defenders on the second level would be able to get a little bit closer to him to avoid these, these bigger runs. So I actually, you know, we didn't hear much from the defensive ends early on in the game, like Rousseau, Epinesa, Shaq Lawson, and Kingsley Jonathan, which by the way, Kingsley Jonathan revenge game. <laughs> it's, it's the little things, right? It happened. Even Ed Oliver after the game was like, yeah, Kingsley Jonathan, he had like a, you could tell he had like a look in his eye that this one meant a lot to him because the Bears... Cut him. Yep. Kingsley Jonathan revenge game. Yeah. I don't know if it's enough to say, hey, that was the Kingsley Jonathan game, but he did make some nice plays. Anyway, the defensive ends, like you didn't hear a ton from them from a pass rushing perspective because that was part of their philosophy. And with such a matchup advantage with their defensive tackles against the Bears interior offensive line, the quickest way to get to fields is obviously right up the middle. 
And so they depended on the interior pressure to be the one that that uh, would force the issue with Fields because that creates so uh, it, it creates fewer scramble lanes than it would if let's say Rousseau just went up took a hard charging wide rush and got washed out by the offensive tackle fields has a very easy lane to get out to the outside and you know from that point forward all he has to do is make people miss in the open field by obtaining this bubble and keeping it it pinned fields in so he had to make about four or five moves just to get free and then from there a lot of the zone defenders for the for the bills would see that he was starting to go into scramble mode and then approach and realize that that was their best means to move the ball down the field and they did a great job they limited him all game long did not give up a big run whatsoever the bears tried some designed runs those didn't work just a great game plan overall and you know leslie frazier and sean mcdermott do a really nice job against younger quarterbacks to take away what they want to do the most and there there was another shining example of it where they they didn't allow justin fields to get in the open field and yeah they, they pretty much dominated defensively outside of the first drive like you look at some of the stats see i think it was I'm going to go back and get the actual stats because after that first drive, I mean, everyone remembers the Bears marched down, they got a touchdown, and they were able to stay ahead for much of that first half. But the the defense from that point forward was just outstanding. Over the Bears' final 51 plays, the Bills only allowed 134 yards, which is 2.6 yards per play. So that was the second drive to the end of the game. 51 plays, 134 yards. And 44 yards of that 134 was on a deep pass from Fields to Vellis Jones that that went into double coverage in which Kyir Elam and Tredavious White both did not make a play on the ball and kind of hung up there too on the on those other 50 plays the bills only allowed 1.8 yards per play that is defensive consistency that is everything that you could ask for going up against an overmatched offense for the most part like the the bears are void of playmaking talent and we kind of knew that going in they were going to be without chase claypool they were without equinamia st brown and though i mean claypool is is a solid player equinamia st brown is probably end of roster guy anywhere else and he was starting a bunch of games they were without darnell mooney who's been on ir who is their best receiver so they were down to dante pettis velis jones um byron pringle The Bills should have dominated that matchup. And then they were down three three offensive linemen, three interior offensive linemen, but besides that. Tough stuff for Justin Fields to try and be good in that environment when 
you're going up against a well-schemed defense that was for the most part healthy and they really do well against young quarterbacks. We've seen it time and time again. So yeah, I think it was an it was a well-executed game plan all in all. Let's see. Next up is goes over to the offensive side of things. PJ aka OBJ recruiter. <laughs> I think I don't know. I'm not sure about that about that dream anymore. Maybe maybe it happens, but who knows. Um, he asks why can't Josh Allen get Diggs the ball? I don't think it's a it's a matter of can't. I think that Josh Allen has really taken a intensified focus on taking what the defense is giving him as opposed to trying to force feed one specific player. Now, there are examples where he does not do the take what is given, like his first interception, which was horrible, throwing across the body and, you know, not living to tell the tale. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That that one was not an interception. That should have been an interception. Um, but the one at the goal line where he was staring down his target. He thought he was taking what the defense was giving him at that point, but he didn't see the entire field. So I think it's not it's not a matter of, hey, what our defense is doing to limit Stefan Diggs. I if I were to guess, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I don't think it's going to be an an overwhelming thing moving forward, but if I had to guess, I think there is going to be an intensified focus <laughs> this week on getting Diggs the ball with room to roam and making sure he is a piece of the puzzle, a big one all the way through. Because when he is going, the entire operation offensively goes that much smoother. Like even against Miami, when he only had five for 60, he was still getting some targets, but the offense was just so efficient all game long. Whereas against the Bears, it just kind of seemed like a slog at times. So I would not be surprised if they just do little quick hitters with Stefan Diggs just to get him involved early and, and get the defense to kind of creep forward a little bit. And then that's where they can go to work in the intermediate and the deep field areas. So I don't think, like I said, PJ, I don't think it's a can't get him the ball. I think Allen has been trying to avoid turnovers and costing his team, even though he did turn the ball over against the Bears. So I would tend to think that that this gets rectified within the next game, game or two. Because if if the Bills are going to have a shot at beating the Bengals in Cincinnati this week, then I think it, a lot of that is going to hinge upon Stefan Diggs being a big part of the game plan. So, so I wouldn't go too overboard with the, hey, what's going on with Allen and Diggs? I, I think they'll, they'll get right probably this week. Next question comes from Jacob W. 
Wincoop. I think that's how I pronounce it. I'm sorry if it's either Winecoop or Wincoop. Jacob writes, I love Brandon Bean. He's a huge reason where we are. We are where we are now, but is it not a failure that he has not invested more into the OL than he has? Seems to always be a Band-Aid guy pickup. In your opinion, has the offensive line been a disappointment this season? I think for the most part, some of their plans at offensive line have kind of flown in their face. The overall lack of depth is the most concerning aspect to it all. Like they were basically depending on one of three things to happen. One of four things, I should say, that Craig Van Roten would find some level of play that he he hasn't had in a while, that Cody Ford would would finally be able to be a dependable reserve option which they wound up trading him that uh tommy doyle in terms this is in terms of the depth by the way that tommy doyle would be able to develop well enough to be their reserve offensive tackle he didn't and he also tore his acl and then from a starting perspective oh no i forgot about this one and then they were depending on ike butker to come back from a torn achilles for their overall depth. But the depth is kind of impacting the starting lineup because the starting lineup hasn't been great. We've talked a lot about the struggles of Roger Saffold this year at left guard, and I still have to watch the tape from the Bears game, but it's been kind of an all-year thing leading up to that game. So I'm not really sure that one game against one of the worst defensive lines in all of football is going to change my viewpoint about what what their offensive line has been like this year. Saffold has struggled. And because of that and the lack of depth, they don't have anyone to challenge him to make the starting offensive line better. But at the very least, Saffold has been consistent in that he has played all season long. He's been the only player along that offensive line that has been available all 15 games. So that part is good from Saffold's perspective. On the right side, Spencer Brown has been so hit or miss. And he was he was good. I was going to say really good, but I don't think I think that's a stretch. He was good at the early part of the season. And then for the second year in a row, he's completely fallen off in the second half. And it does make you wonder, okay, what is the play here from a from an off-season perspective? I do think I agree with you, Jacob. I think their predicament at the offensive line this season has been through some neglect from this front office in utilizing resources at those positions. I feel like it's been the last two or three drafts where I've been saying like, you know, drafting a center that can play guard in the meantime is probably the best thing for every, for all parties because you're not depending on guys like Greg Van Roten. And, you know, they, they like Ike Butker a ton. 
But you also didn't know in the offseason whether or not he was going to be able to return at all. Like, you had hope, you were optimistic, and he's back. But that was kind of a, a dangerous thing to begin with. To trust that he would become a piece of the puzzle down the stretch. And then you also have your starting center who is great and has been their best offensive lineman this year. He has a long history of concussions and he had a good run where he was playing concussion, concussion free football and for quite some time, but then he suffered another one against the dolphins and now they're without their starting center. And this isn't to say that like the offensive lineman you draft, the interior offensive lineman that you draft is is going to come in and, and be as good as Mitch Morse, as good as Deion Dawkins, as good as Ryan Bates has. I don't think anyone would be expecting of that. But it at least takes you from like an a B plus player in Mitch Mitch Morse to maybe like a B minus player in the rookie who would probably have a lot of potential to start down the line. Right now, you have a B plus player in Mitch Morse who has been one of their best players of the season going down to like a a low C or or D player in Greg Van Roten. And that is a huge gap. And Van Roten played well against the Dolphins, so I don't want to go too far. But that, that was one game as opposed to the rest of the sample size that we had seen throughout his season. So it's just a matter of allocating those resources. Like the one that I always think back to is Boogie Basham because Basham has basically been a non-factor in a couple of seasons. And they had just drafted Greg Rousseau in, in the round before. There were offensive linemen available, interior offensive linemen available that could have impacted their overall depth and even their starting lineup. But they chose to go with the defensive end. You know, I, I get it because they didn't have Von Miller at that point. They were unsure about... AJ Epinesa after his rookie season. So I understand the logic, but I do think continuing to just pile resources into one position and neglecting others, it's going to eventually impact you. And I think that's what we have seen this year from the depth perspective. And I, I'm not saying that they should have just drafted a guard only in like one of the top three rounds. No, it's to me, it's always drafting someone that can be versatile enough to help you at guard in the interim up until the time that Mitch Morse's contract expires or he decides to walk away from the NFL. And at which point you can shift that player over to center. So the what if game, if they had drafted an offensive lineman rather than Boogie Basham, then do they need to sign Roger Saffold? Probably not. Do they have an, uh, another option besides Ryan Bates, whose playing level goes down when he goes to center? They sure do. 
it's just a matter of because offensive linemen we see is they're just so hard to come by good ones so you have to draft to that position so i would not be surprised if that's a major point of emphasis so good question jacob that you know that's that's a spot that i think is going to be a a focal point of the upcoming offseason but the bills have a lot of those actually and it's kind of underrated so we'll get to some offseason stuff later on looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's see. Next question goes to Justin Andrew, who writes, what is the biggest concern for the Bills entering the postseason? He writes, mine is the run defense. And then he asks, will they win the number one seed or will they falter? I'm going to cop out of the last question because I do need to watch the Bengals. And I do want to save some of that for the episode later this week because, you know, I I don't just want to go in here and be like, yep, Bills are going to roll over the Bengals who have won seven in a row without watching a single second of their all 22. So I, I'll say I'll answer that question later on because whether or not they win the number one seed is directly impacted by whether or not they win this game. I would say my biggest concern for the Bills entering the postseason is their secondary because, you know, Jordan Poyer has has been rock solid all season long, certainly playing himself into some good money in the offseason and not sure it's in Buffalo, but it's definitely being noticed elsewhere so i would i would tend to think that maybe he he finds a nice little payday in free agency but outside of him it's been a bit of a struggle taron johnson has also been good but hamlin has struggled it's gotten better but has struggled tackling being a a tick too slow and reacting like those are things that teams good teams, good passing offenses are going to take advantage of. Whether it's Dane Jackson or Kair Elam or Christian Benford on one side of the field, like there's going to be some opportunities for good passing offenses to take advantage of of whichever player is over there. And then on the other side, Tredavious White, I just don't think he's all the way there yet. And I, again, this is ahead of me looking at the All-22 against the Bears. So... You know, whether or not he was 
a bit better this week than he was last week because I know he got a lot of attention for what he did against the Dolphins. But if you watch the film, there's a lot of holding and grabbing the receiver to kind of slingshot him forward where after he was initially beaten on the route. So I do want to see how he performed against a Bears receiver group that struggled to separate and if there were some opportunities there against him. But, you know, I, I do think that he's going to be going up against a lot tougher opponents. And I don't necessarily think that's a stretch than what the Bears have at wide receiver. I mean, he's going to contend with one of Jamar Chase or T. Higgins every single play this week. And the Bengals are one of the best teams in football. So there is a... a pretty solid percentage that Tredavious White is going to be going up against an elite receiver almost at every stage of the postseason. Whether it's whether it's one of those two guys. You know, if Miami can turn things around after losing another game. One of Tyreek Hill or Jalen Waddell. The Chargers have a couple of good receivers and Mike Williams and and Keenan Allen, the Chiefs, it's less of a receiver thing and a, more of a Patrick Mahomes thing. I mean, even the Jaguars are coming along with Trevor Lawrence and, and Christian Kirk. And Kirk mostly, I think he lines up in the slot a lot, but still. They're going to be going up against some good passing offenses, and that, to me, is why the secondary and whether or not they can pick it up from what we have seen this season, that's that would be my biggest concern for the Bills entering the postseason. If the Bills offense isn't on, they have, you know, a passing offense can really just force the issue against against a good Bills defense but it might be the thing that puts the opponent over the top so I'll stick with the secondary and think the development of Kair Elam and uh, Christian Benford is going to and really Tredavious White working through the early weeks of his return from a torn ACL I think that's that's all going to be very important all right, let's shift into some uh, off-season stuff because you know we've we've dabbled a little bit, but I think this is I think it's a great time to kind of do it. Um, oh, before we do that, big picture before off-season, Zachary Roach writes: Will Micah Hyde return this season? I the the short answer is I don't know if he will, but they also have left the door wide open on it. Micah Hyde has continued to work along the side. Like it doesn't seem there has been like a setback or anything like that. He's out there with the likes of Jamison Crowder and some of the other injured reserve players or the guys that have been trying to get back from their current injury while on the active roster. Christian Benford's over there with him. That's not normal behavior of a guy who thinks that he is a locked-in, out-for-the-year guy. 
and they've liked him as Coach Hyde or Coach Micah, whatever whatever moniker they're using with him. But and he's highly invested on the on the sidelines. There's no doubt there. There is everything within Micah Hyde that where he wants to get back. You know, back late November, I, I remember saying this to you guys then. I asked him point blank, is there hope for you to come back? And and he said, I would love to, I would love to, but it's up to the doctors. And then he said, historically, no, but those were other situations, other people, was the gist of his comments. And then Brandon Bean, a couple weeks ago, after Cole Beasley had signed with the Bills, said that they're not ruling anything out at this point, but they just don't, they don't know because there's still so much uncertainty. So that's why I I don't have like a firm answer for you, but what I can tell you is Micah Hyde is going to do everything in his power to be able to return at some point in the postseason. If the Bills are alive to where he can do it. It's just all going to depend on his rehab, the doctor's opinions, because neck injuries and coming back from neck surgery, that's not something to mess around with. And you have to think about longevity. He still is signed into next season, and he's going to be a, a, a key piece of their defense next year because of how they might have to approach this offseason with rising cap costs and other positions. So having him as a known known commodity on the roster is important. That said, if they clear him, he wants with every single piece of him to be involved in this postseason run because he's probably looking at this as their best shot and by far the most talented roster they'll have to get to and to win a Super Bowl in Buffalo. Not saying that they can't do it in future years, but with Allen's cap going up into the 40s for the foreseeable future, and then Von Miller's cap hit going up, and then all the other guys on the roster that are in their prime right now starting to enter the the final stages of their career once they get into the high 20s, early 30s. That's why they're right in this sweet spot right now. So for Hyde, he's probably looking at it and going, yeah, this might be this is this might be the one. I mean, they're 12 and 3. They've got a a shot at the number 1 seed and having the entire AFC playoffs coming through Buffalo. There's a lot of uh momentum there for why he would want to come back so quickly after neck surgery, but to be determined. Yeah, it it certainly perks your uh, your eyebrows up when you see him continuing to do stuff to the side during practices. So we'll just leave it there. And then I suppose it's a to-be-continued situation more than anything. All right, now to the off-season stuff. Justin writes in, do you see Jordan Phillips, 
Daquan Jones, Shaq Lawson, and Devin Singletary as Bills next year. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Daquan, Daquan Jones is signed for next year. I, I'm pretty sure he signed a two-year deal. Let me just double-check on that. Um, but the other guys are, yeah, Daquan Jones is signed through 2023. So he's he's on the books for next year. They could cut him and save $1.5 million, but I would, he's had such a good season. I would anticipate he's here um, in 2023 to pair with Ed Oliver. The other guys, though, that, that you mentioned, Jordan Phillips, Shaq Lawson, and Devin Singletary. And I like that you went to this tier of free agents because obviously the big questions on everybody's mind is Jordan Poyer and Tremaine Edmonds, which I think they'll be able to keep one of those two. And this is a bonus. If it's me, I'm sticking with Tremaine Edmonds just because of how much longer he he could give you as opposed to Jordan Poyer. But, you know, it is a lot of money to chuck around for for another linebacker when you have a pretty high salary on your books with Matt Milano already. But it's so important to their defense and I guess I guess we'll see there. So, I that's why I like that you did this this tier. Jordan Phillips, Shaq Lawson, Devin Singletary, the you know, good not great players on the roster. If I had to guess, I think the priority list with those three guys is probably, and it and it shifted from what it was earlier, is probably Shaq Lawson first because of how well he has played this uh, this season for them, especially after Von Miller went down with an injury. Like all logic would point to AJ Epinesa being the guy that winds up with more snaps once Von Miller was done for the season because how how much he gives them from a pass rushing perspective in his rotation in his rotational role and he plays the opposite side of Greg Rousseau they invested a second round pick on AJ Epinesa they have nothing invested in Shaq Lawson at this point was he their first round pick from forever ago under Rex Ryan and and Doug Whaley. Yeah, he was, but he's now on a, a veteran minimum contract. But he has come through and just been really solid for them since entering the starting lineup. He has forced AJ Epinesa back into a rotational role. And it's not going to be a crazy pass rushing player. But what Lawson has essentially become is that same player that he was at the end of his first Bills tenure. Just without the the crazy sack statistics that he got that year. That were a little bit of fool's gold, but it helped get him paid. He went elsewhere and learned that the defense that suits him best is in Buffalo. So he's trying to get his career back and with how the defensive end room is setting up and how little that they've gotten from Boogie Basham for much of the season. I'm probably if, if I'm the bills, I'm probably seeing if Shaq Lawson will sign another one year deal for, you know, just 
get his compensation up a bit, but maybe you throw some void ears in there to, to lessen the cap hit, but I, I don't think he's going to cash in. I think he wants to stay in Buffalo. And so that ability to re-sign is, is going to be pretty significant for them. Devin Singletary would probably be number two on this list. It's close between him and Jordan Phillips. Singletary, I would anticipate them letting him go to market. And if he doesn't hit a certain number or if he has a lot less interest than maybe he thought he would have or him and his agent thought he would have, I could definitely see a one-year return between those two guys, between those two entities. Because they do like Singletary and they like mixing him in with, with James Cook and Singletary has, has done a nice job since they've focused more on the run game. I think Cook is the higher ceiling player, but Singletary has played a significant role for them over the last four seasons. And I don't think that they'll necessarily look away from that. I just I just can't see them investing a ton of cap room into Devin Singletary. Especially after they dialed back his snap counts in favor to get James Cook more involved at the end of his rookie season. So he's probably number two. Jordan Phillips comes in last on that list for me just because injury concerns are real. I think if he were to sign a a veteran minimum contract or maybe just a little bit more than that, they'd be happy to do that to continue that that four-man group that they had up front. But if Jordan Phillips is looking for a bigger payday, then, then that might be tough. And then they also have some solid de- developmental defensive tackles that they can get by with, like Eli Anku, who they like and who's still on their practice squad. He's currently on their injured practice squad list. But he's someone that has given them good time on the field. I'm sure Justin Zimmer will be a free agent at the end of the year again. Um Brandon Bryant is still on their practice squad. They can always draft another defensive tackle. They don't have to necessarily run it back with Jordan Phillips. I mean, he's been injured a lot this year, whether it's been hamstring, shoulder. So that's a concern. And that's been kind of a a thing with his career. But they do like him in the locker room. And I think the, the contract just has to be right. So Lawson, Singletary, then Phillips. Okay, next question, I think will be the, yeah, I think I've gotten through all the rest of them that, I, that I've uh, earmarked here. Um, let's go with Carmen, who writes in, any prediction on what positions the Bills target with their first three picks of this draft? Now, long way to go, obviously, because the the draft is still in April and there's a lot of things that need to unfold through the rest of this regular season and in the postseason that will surely shape how the Bills go about their business in the offseason. Like when they were eliminated two years ago after getting blown out in Kansas City in the AFC Championship game, the big takeaway after the Bucks beat the, the Chiefs in the Super Bowl was that they needed 
more of a pass rush than what they had. And then they go through and they draft Greg Rousseau and Boogie Basham in back-to-back rounds. So, like I said, there's there's quite a bit that still has to be written here, but I do come down to a few different positions that they should at least focus on for the early rounds of the draft. The first of which is wide receiver. And this is in no specific order, by the way. Um, but wide receiver to me is one of those positions that is not as strong as the the weight of the paper was early in the early in the year, training camp, all that good stuff. They know they have Stefan Diggs and he's their locked in number one. But Gabe Davis will be entering his contract year in 2023, final year of his rookie deal. Isaiah McKenzie has just been kind of meh this year. You know, solid sometimes, makes a big play every once in a while. Not something to write home about. Probably best utilized as a wide receiver four or wide receiver five. Basically what he was before this year. Khalil Shakir. Getting some, still getting snaps, even though they signed Cole Beasley. Not really an overwhelming pass-catching player. Josh Allen really isn't looking his way all that often. He had two targets against the Bears, but I think in the four or five games before that one, he had two targets combined. So that's tough to really bank on. Then you don't have anything else besides that. I mean, Jameson Crowder is a free agent. Jake Kumaro is a free agent. Cole Beasley is a free agent. John Brown's a free agent. You can, you're probably going to get Keyshawn Johnson back from your practice squad on a reserve futures deal. Tanner Gentry is probably going to hang around again because that's what he does. But there's not really that second option that's bankable. And you have to consider the fact that Gabe Davis is entering the final year of his rookie deal. Like, are you going to pay Gabe Davis? That is the number one question that you have to ask yourself right now. Is Gabe Davis so important to what you do on a week-to-week basis that you need to give him a sizable amount of cap room when you have so many other things working, uh, working to bring the cap cost up. Like where does wide receiver two rank? And the sneaky thing about this whole situation is that Stefan Diggs in 2023 will be entering his age 30 season. His birthday's in November, so he's going to be 29 through the first couple of months. But at 30 mark is where you start to you know, want to plan about what's what it's going to look like when the inevitable happens. And we all know what the inevitable is. It's that there is eventually going to be a drop-off in play from the star receiver. Some receivers do it well into age 31, age 32, maybe even age 33, but... The majority have a drop-off once they get in to the early 30s. 
So do you want to just run it till the wheels fall off or do you want to have a backup plan? That's why receiver to me, in addition to the Davis point, in addition to the McKenzie point, and in addition to what they could use in 2023, why it's such a worthwhile investment in this upcoming draft. So wide receiver is one of those spots. The other one is something that we touched on earlier in the episode, interior offensive line. To me, that's a gotta have it. Roger Saffold has not been good this season. Mitch Morse, he's going to be entering the final year of his contract, and he's still going through a concussion right now. So we don't know where that's going to end up as of time of recording this podcast, which is Monday around noon. And then, you know, Ryan Bates, you know, you got him. Deion Dawkins, solid at left tackle this year. Not his best season, but still good enough to get through. But you need to draft to that group. Finding someone, whether it's second, third round, maybe even fourth round, that has the capability to play center, but can give you reps at guard in the meantime. I think it's so important. I've I've thought it's important the last couple of drafts. They haven't drafted to it. They instead, a couple drafts ago, went with two offensive tackles, and neither of those have panned out. But you got to do it. That, you know, guard to me is one of those more replaceable positions. Like Ryan Bates is a great example here. They traded, God, who was it? Why? Harold Landry. I'm so glad I I came up with that. Um, In one random training camp, and they've developed him in the background. So you never really know, but you also have to take shots at it. And I think investing in a center especially when Morse is entering the final year of his deal is going to be important. His, I, I mean, you have to wonder how much longer does this guy want to play when he's suffering as many concussions as he is. So it's a, a very real life thing. And they, I think they, they might need to address it. Um, see, safety is another one I think is humongous here. And for obvious reasons, Jordan Poyer, He's a free agent at the end of the year. Micah Hyde, free agent after the 2023 season. Damar Hamlin, solid to below average. Jaquan Johnson, he's a free agent. They couldn't trust him in the lineup, and they demoted him. Cam Lewis, he's a cornerback, and they've been using him as their third safety all season. Crying for a a young player. And so I think safety should have been a a consideration this past draft, but... You know, I brought up the Kyle Hamilton idea. He ended up going earlier than than, uh, than the Bills would have struck for him. But, you know, would have been a, a solid player within their scheme. And really, there were other options too, like Lewis Seen, um, Dax Hill. Even though Dax Hill is more like a Micah Hyde than a Poyer. But Lewis Seen, to me, was one of the, like, wow, that guy would fit really well. But they didn't. They went with a cornerback, and they need to make sure that Kyrie Elam is able to get back that return of investment. But safety is is definitely one of those. Offensive tackle, I think, is a sneaky one. Uh, defensive end might be a sneaky one if they don't bring back Shaq Lawson. 
offensive tackle, obviously, because Spencer Brown has struggled this season and they don't really have much depth there. Linebacker, maybe if they don't bring it, bring back Tremaine Edmonds, I'm probably would lean to them re-signing him than not. Especially with Terrell Bernard not really progressing in his rookie season to where they can trust him enough to put him on the field on defense. Like I thought a, a sneaky sign against the Bears was late in the game when they brought in their backups. It was AJ Klein and Tyrell Dodson in at linebacker, not Terrell Bernard. So that means Bernard has fallen to fifth on the depth chart, only above Tyler Matakiewicz and Balen Spector, who has been a healthy scratch basically all season. So that's why I think yeah, Edmonds is probably really important to what they want to do. A couple sneaky ones I'll throw in. Running back, maybe, if they don't bring back Singletary. Somebody to, to pair with James Cook. I don't think it... I think the time of thinking they could take one in the first round is probably done. They just have way too many future needs and current needs to consider that running back position. Maybe it changed my mind based on the player, but, um, you know, I do think they like James Cook and might be one of those spots where they think they can get by for a couple of years before they have to address the position in the draft again. And then cornerback. All depends on Elam, Trey White, Christian Benford, everything like that. But I think those are the... Uh, the options there. All right. So that's going to do it. I think uh, we had a ton of good questions. So thank you everyone for, for bringing those great questions to the table. Uh, the bills next up against the Bengals in their one of their games of the year. They have had a, a few of them now, and it's going to be a lot of fun in Cincinnati Monday night. Bengals winners of their last seven bills winner of the winners of their last six if the bills beat the Bengals, then they would be just one win shy of claiming the top overall seed a first round by and home field advantage advantage in the afc playoffs and if the bills were to win mixed with a chief's loss to the broncos which probably isn't going to happen Maybe, probably not. Then the Bills would clinch that top spot immediately because they would be 13-3. and three. The Bengals would be, I think, 11-5 and five at that point. The Chiefs, who are currently 12-3, and three, just like the Bills. Yeah, since he would be 11-5 and five at that point. And the Bills would obviously have the tiebreaker, but it wouldn't be necessary. Um, the Bills would be 13-3. and The Chiefs would be 12-4. and And even if the Bills were to lose that final game and the Chiefs were to win, a 13-4 and tie would still go to the Bills. So Bills win, Chiefs loss. They're topsy in the AFC. But the likelier route is that the Bills are going to have to win their last two to get home field advantage. But it all starts with the Cincinnati game, which is going to be tons of fun. The Bengals are absolutely legit. And they are the type of team that can expose flaws in the Bills that have been lying dormant in the last few games. But it's also a type of opponent that can wake up 
some of the strengths of the Bills roster that have also been dormant. I can't wait for this one. It's going to be really fun to be there and and be able to uh, see it all unfold in person. That's going to be, you know, outside the Kansas City game, which one was which was obvious. That's going to be the uh, this this game coming up is going to be the regular season game I probably remember most from this year because it, it could signal great things into the postseason or the other part, which where the, maybe the Bengals passed the Bills. Maybe the Bengals and Chiefs have both passed the Bills. Those three teams are very close to one another. So it's going to be a lot of a lot of fun. So we will talk to you later this week when those two teams square off against it, against one another. Um, thank you all for listening to this post game, technically pod, not doing the awards, not the, not the time we've, it's been a couple of days, so we're just going to chill with the awards. A lot of great questions. Thank you so much. Hope you all had wonderful holidays and have stayed warm throughout the storm. It's a, uh, it was, uh, it was tough out there, so I appreciate you all for making me a part, especially of your day, especially after you're, you're trying to dig out and unbury yourselves. I know I've got a, I've got a roof to, to shovel myself. So, uh, so yeah, good luck with everything from that perspective, and, and yeah, certainly stay warm all the same. All right, thank you so much for listening. My name is Joe Biscalia, and we will talk to you later in the week to preview the Bills-Bengals game of Week 17. Talk to you then.